darling, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I'm beyond delighted to introduce you to some people who embody what it means to be absolute champions. These are individuals who have inspired, stood up for change and shined bright. From superstar highs to the awkward teenage years, come with me on a journey of discovery to find out what makes these people my heroes and I guarantee they will be yours too. And today we have an absolute whopper for you. Not one, but two guests. Why? Because it's pride, honey. That's right, we have Princess Julia and Danny St. James. Oh, and we're live. Hello, everybody. I want to start by thanking you all for coming to this dark, slightly warm room on a very, very hot day. It's much appreciated. Welcome to We Can Be Heroes. We wanted to go big tonight. We wanted to have two huge guests. One thing that's reoccurring across this podcast is we only want the icons. We want the heroes. We want people that are making change. And we want to talk to people that have paved their own way in life and that have sort of said fuck you to society and are doing things on their terms, which I think is pretty iconic, right? So I think there's no better guest to bring up first than an absolute icon. She is London nightlife royalty, also the queen of social media. She's the first lady of London's fashion scene. She's a muse. She's the ultimate bonnet-wearing goddess. It is the one, the only Princess Julia. Yes, Julia. Come and take a pew. Come and take a throne. So, Julia... I have known you for some time, and uh, before I actually got to know you, I, like most people in East London, saw you, the vision, the peacock, wherever you go in East London, or London, I should say, there you are, I think, a a beacon of joy and colour. Thanks. (laughs) Except that compliment. I'm quite overwhelmed by that introduction. How does someone that we see before us, this goddess, how do you get there from a child? Were you always like this? I think I had a moment about the age of 16 where I had a sort of revelation. I was waiting for this moment to escape from the mundanity of my home life and the restrictive feeling. And even though that home life was just down the road in Palmer's (laughs) Green. (laughs) And what did that rebellion look Um, like? I just knew there was a world outside of the one that I was living in, which was quite strict. I had quite strict parents, actually. And uh, my father was Hungarian and really had some very old-fashioned ideas, which included marrying me off at age 15, which was a bit petrifying. Mm. And I just sort of knew... I'd seen things on TV. I knew there was a world out there, up the road, not far away. But somehow it felt really far away. You know, when you're growing up and you're in your family home and you obviously are getting information from lots of sources along the way and you just know that your people are out there somewhere. I had that feeling... So how did you find those people? Because we talk about this a lot, actually, on the podcast. Representation is everything. And I think it's a lot easier now for me or for 
people that are a lot younger than me, which is, there's a lot of them, to see icons, there I said it, and, and see people. But who were those icons that you were looking up to? I guess I was looking at pop stars, um, even though they seemed quite far away. Yeah. They also seemed like my friends. You know, I grew up in the early 70s. That's when I was a teenager. And I looked towards the, the glam rock scene, which was quite gender fluid, actually, yeah. and very forward thinking. And my generation really looked towards those icons. You know, I was quite sort of go-getting in my way, and I'd sort of bunk off school and go and sit in Bieber all day. And this was, like, <laughs> 1973, and I was 13. I'd do things like that, you know. So I was quite... I had this sort of spirit and bravery, which yeah. I think that when you're young, you some people do have that idea that you can just do these things. I think it's born from a frustration as well, right? When you feel disillusioned with what's going on around you in your day-to-day life, you rebel. I just didn't feel excited by what was going on around me. And I felt very sort of constrained. And, like, my life was being... Uh, rolled out for me and I had to conform to that and then I realised quite early on that all that idea was like social conditioning and like school life is like quite it's brainwashing and and I just didn't really feel like I fitted in to any of those things I didn't want to have children I didn't want to be in a relationship and I certainly didn't want to be made to marry someone I mean that sounds bizarre to me I mean these things are still going on but you know where was that first place that you really felt truly accepted um I think um you know when I left school I got a job straight away and um I found a group of friends that seemed to be like similar to me but I was very very shy and also this was like 1976 so the punk movement was in its sort of peaking moment I would say Mm. and some of the people that I was meeting were involved in that scene and also there was a crossover into the gay scene the gay clubbing scene that I really felt drawn to in so many levels so I guess my first sort of experiences of gay clubs and gigs and with a bunch of other people that we were just sort of tearing around doing <laughs> silly things and getting dressed up. And then a bit later on, I made great friends with Steve Strange and then somehow I got involved with the New Romantic movement. That That's what it became, the New Romantic movement. I find it fascinating that <laughs> over the last three decades, four decades... Yeah. When you look at any cultural movement, significant cultural movement, you're slap bang in the middle of it. (laughs) I mean, if you open any book by any queer person of notoriety, Julia is name checked, always. Rupert Rupert Everett, Boy George, there's Julia. Not once, not twice, usually (laughs) throughout. So, I mean, obviously there's been the rave scene, there's been the new romantic scene, the, the drag scene in general. What is it? What is it? This is a massive question, but what is it about you, Julia? Do you know. find just, it or does it find you? I don't know. I just, I just, it's all just sort of rolled over. 
over the years. So, like, from the sort of new romantic scene, suddenly there were, like, all these other things going on <laughs> that I was really excited by. And then I'd go to them. I'm quite nosy. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I went from being the co-check girl at the Blitz to being a cashier lady at the WAG Club. And then I was co-check girl again in the mid-'80s at Lee Bowery's night. Taboo. Yes. So I ended up there as well. well. But I guess it was a bit of both. I gravitate towards the super expressive, yeah. edgy, subcultural vibe. And they've come to me. That comes to me as well. I mean, well. one thing I noticed with you, and I've seen it over the years, is that you take your position... Seriously, and you mentor a lot of young, queer kids, a lot of creatives. How important is that to you? I feel in today's atmosphere that it's very important, if you can and you're able to, uh, provide uh, platforms and ways for people to express themselves. And you do the same thing with your projects and mm. nights and events. And, and I try to do that in my own way as well. But also an ongoing conversation. Exactly. And it's very sincere. It's just something that is inherent in living a fulfilled life. Sharing. That I feel. Yeah it's, yeah, it's like, it's all those things, all those things we talk about, you know, community, exchange of ideas and ways to just express your experience and be able to have space to converse. Right. So I want to know about the Blitz Club, mainly because <laughs> when I think about Sink the Pink, it's the biggest... That's my other career. Yeah, I know, talking about the my Blitz to- Club. My talking head's career. Yeah, <laughs> TV. I know. You're always there if there's a, if there's a TV doc about the Blitz. In comes well, Julia. You know We're in. I think it's really important that um, there's a variance of voices coming in. And I do notice, even though I do know these people, Ovs, that there's a lot of straight white men that seem to have taken it over. So I always sort of make an effort to, like, make sure there's a variance of gender voices going on because you know the punk scene was really queer and the new romantic scene was really queer and these underground subcultural scenes always are very very queer what are the standout (laughs) moments for you is there ever a moment where let's take the blitz club that just stands out as that pinch me moment of like wow, that happened. I'll be talking about that on a Talking Head show in 20 years. There were quite a few. Did Bowie ever come? Yeah, he did, yeah. There was a definite rustle going on. The room tilt. Yeah, but um, I think, really, we were so emerged in our own decadence that we were so busy posing, and we did enjoy (laughs) posing. One of the photographers down there was Derek Ridges. He was always very polite and always asked us if he could take our pictures. So because he did that and they weren't so reportage in actual fact, that's why a lot of that idea is that we're really, you know, we are giving it, we're serving. Yeah. We're serving <laughs> a look because we were asked to 
posed, so we, we kind of, like, really sort of embellished on that yeah. even more. I just look quite sullen. It's <laughs> <laughs> my usual look. Obviously, there's more to you than the Blitz and posing. Yeah, there is. Not much more, though. DJ- no, there is. There's loads more. I started DJing more seriously around 1986, and it was at a club called The Daisy Chain, which was the fridge in Brixton. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I really cut my teeth. And then it was so exciting because I was so into electronic music. I loved it so much. And we had that real fantastic post-punk moment earlier on in the previous decade, which I adored. And also, I am a major, major disco fan and Believe it or not, I play the same disco tunes that I've been playing for about 40 <laughs> years. I can't believe it myself. Anyway, I just thought, yeah, I'm going to have a go at that DJing properly. I did have a little go earlier on in the 80s at the WAG Club and DJed for a night called Total Fashion Victims, hosted <laughs> by Stephen Linnard. <laughs> And I met Fat Tony around that time as well. And I did give Tony some guide points to DJing. I I take complete blame for that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. I want to talk about some other more recent moments. One that really stands out for me is being immortalised by Bimini on Drag Race. Oh. How did you feel when that happened? And did you know that that was coming? Well, so... Bimini was one of our special people at the Glory and we made friends there, really. Mm. And then Bimini started asking me some questions about my wardrobe and things like that Mm. and um, then said that they were doing something. So I knew something was brewing, but I didn't know what. Obviously, we were all really excited, weren't we? when the first episode came. I mean, it was a highlight. And, like, I didn't know that was going to happen at all. Wow. You must have been so proud at that point in time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm always proud of people getting up and doing things. And I'm proud of you. I mean, you know, I'm moved to tears quite often at, like, people just getting up and just expressing themselves so it takes, brilliantly. It takes guts. Do you know what I did the other week? I was, it was so fab, and I really miss this thing. The, the Lip Sync 1000 mm. at the Glory, which I love. It's one of my favourites. And it's come back, and I was a judge last week. And actually, that's where Bimini... Of course. ...cut their teeth, yeah. isn't it, really? Yeah. And then it's Sink the Pink. Yes. I mean, these moments just keep coming. That's the thing. I could sort of say, well, that, you know... Blitz moment, that was a pinnacle. It was a pinnacle, but things just keep happening that are, like, so invigorating. So what do you think it is, then, that makes a club scene a movement? Because there is a difference. What takes it into being a cultural movement? A sense of community, a sense of uh, spirit, of honesty... And just getting a bunch of people together that are all on the same sort of wavelengths and accepting all the quirks and fabulousness, the flaws, actually, to what the outside world may think 
our flaws, but actually celebrating the weirdness, which is so much more human and honest and real. You know, around the world, when you travel around, you find other pockets of fabulosity. So it's it's a mood that just uh, encapsulates our community. Talking of fabulosity, talking Mm -hmm. of community, it's time we bring up our second guest, the wonderful Danny St. James. Hi. So Danny is literally pushing forward every day what it is, I think, to be an LGBTQ plus hero. She is the founder of Not A Phase. She's laughing because she's also my dear friend. We won't (laughs) giggle all the way through this. And she is a truly wonderful human being. So, Thanks. Danny, I want to start for you to explain basically to everybody what is Not A Phase sure. and where it was born. So I would say it was a baptism of fire to become an organisation. So it was at the beginning of last year. It was kind of chimed in with the beginning of the pandemic was the beginning of Not A Phase. It all started happening at the same time. There were these leaked documents that were coming out of the Tory Equality Minister's office that were detailing what looked to be a massive rollback in rights for trans people in the Mm. UK. And so it was just really scary. And I found myself getting so emotional over the whole thing. Not for myself, because the specifics of the rollbacks actually wouldn't have applied to me because it was all about trans kids and trans people that didn't have their documentation I transitioned a long time ago, so I had everything in line. But I was just mourning my community. It was originally set up with a friend who's no longer involved, but we were, we were calling each other every day, just crying. We were crying and reading the updates, and it was just like we were being attacked by our own government that was supposed to represent us. And so not a phase kind of happened. It originally started as a fundraiser. It was going to be a fundraiser to help a trans youth charity, And it snowballed really, really quickly. Within weeks, we had legal people involved and we were piecing it all together. And the reason for it was, is that there aren't actually any organisations that do work for trans people once they hit 18. After that, there's not a lot going on in terms of, like, support, social support, just help. And so it was more so okay, well, we can, I've got the resources, you know, I've got the the network and and, and we can build this organisation because there's great organisations like um, Gendered Intelligence, Stonewall and all of those that do fantastic work with legislation and corporate negotiation, things like that. But no one's actually on a ground level. Basically, we wanted to fill the gaps that were currently big cracks that the community were falling into workplace support, social stuff, bringing people together. We are a fractured, marginalised group of people that are scattered all over the UK. And we wanted to bring people together and put some smiles on some faces and pull people out of this turmoil. When I started transitioning, my first referral when I started 12 years ago was less than a year. Now, you're looking at a starting point of five years, depending on which part of the country you're living in realistically you're going to be looking at about 10 years with the current situation in London if I was referred to Tavistock today as a result of underfunding understaffing I would be waiting it's estimated about 26 years for a first appointment just to prove myself to somebody else 
and I can't do anything. With not faith, I can't, I can't change the waiting list. I can't do anything medical. But what I can do is stop people feeling so alone. And that was where things changed, was, okay, let's bring everybody back together. So I know you do that very much through the online platform oh, of well, not faith. Yeah, you're right. It all started online. I mean, I, re- I think it really spoke for the fact that it was needed of how quickly it grew. There was this need for it. And then when it came about, companies latched onto it, the community latched onto it, notable people latched onto it. We became celebrated quite quickly, which was lovely, but it was because it was so needed that we just needed kind of a starting point for everybody to meet at. Yeah. I think all of the fastest growing things and the biggest things come as a reaction. Oh, absolutely. A reaction to something that's not happening and a frustration and a disillusion. Why you? I mean, a lot of people, we all sit here and we go, I want to change the world. You are on that path now, changing people's lives, changing legislation. Why you? Why me? I went on my own kind of personal journey of not really feeling like I was really worth anything a few years ago to I got sober and I I lost nearly everything through not only the pandemic but also through my own reckless life I I lost nearly everything and I realized that I'd spent my entire adult life chasing things that only benefit myself and then as soon as I started chasing things that benefit other people, anything that I'd been chasing for myself started coming to me as a, a byproduct of the fact that I was chasing mm. for anybody else. So I think why me is because I genuinely do believe that I put the needs of other people first. And, and I think it took me going through quite a lot of things to get to that point. And also, I spent a long time building a decent following, building traction. And I think I have a responsibility with that not only with the platform that I have access to and the people I have access to, but also the privilege that I carry as somebody that, you know, is is in touch with the right people, looks a way that society deems acceptable to pass through many doors that other people in my community are not able to pass through. So I have that privilege and it's I have the responsibility to do is to put that to work so that other people that don't have it have access to what that enables. So how can people outside your own marginalised community help or push the agenda along of what you're doing? I think it's the biggest misconception with these problems that it's our problem to fix, is that my voice only carries so far. There's only so many rooms that, that I have access to go into, figuratively, is that everybody else has the responsibility because I can provide you with all of the learnings all of the resources, all of the talks, all of the information, anything you need, I'll give to you. But depending on who you are, you have access to a a whole host of other people that you can carry that knowledge into in a non-threatening way. And that's where change happens. Change happens not by making people feel stupid and by going, if you didn't already know this, then you're a bigot. That's not how it happens. The way change happens is by friends and peers listening to each other and learning So if everybody takes on the information and then they speak to their 74-year-old nan or they speak to their local swimming club or they're around the table drinking pints in the pub with the guys, 
you know, they hear something, they call it out, actually, you're not right, and this is why I actually learned this already. You know, that's where change happens. I genuinely believe that 99% of people are good and they want good things. They just don't know about it. I don't think that we live in a 50-50 society that everybody is split and there's good and there's bad. I think most people are good and mean well and want the best for everybody, but they just don't really understand things. Wow. And that's how you run a charity with that level of optimism, I think. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I want to take you back a bit. Yes. You were born on glamorous Barry Island. Yeah. And you went to a Catholic school in the noughties. How was that for you then? Because obviously you're a very confident human being. You have a lot of self-worth. Yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah, do you know what? I've always, I've always maintained that I was very lucky not to have been bullied. And I don't think I was bullied... But I reflected on it a lot over the last year or so. And then I realised, oh, things did happen that I didn't really allow the feeling that that wasn't a nice thing to happen to me. Like, it wasn't nice that my teacher called my mum into school to let them know that I wasn't going with God's plan. And it wasn't nice that I had a rock thrown at my head when I was this. Yeah. The whole time I've been like, I was so lucky because I wasn't battered black and blue. I was so lucky. And now I'm like, oh, actually. So you were just coping. I was just coping, yeah. yeah. And I think it was a resilience thing as well, you know. I, I think I was so lucky to have the parents I did who were punks. And my dad used to come down from Milton Keynes and go to the Blitz and all of that. And my dad always used to say when I was really little, oh, my kid's just like Bowie. My kid's just like Boy George. Because I was just this, like, gender bender. It shows the power of representation. That was what he had access yeah, to was, exactly. was Bowie and Boy George. And so that, in his mind, was where I was going in the direction of and so I had these two people that didn't think that I had to be put into a box so I didn't really feel like I was in a box didn't feel like that classic tagline of trapped in the wrong body I wasn't trapped in I was actually in the right body in the right place I just had to have a few extra hurdles to jump over I wasn't nothing was wrong it was just different a different path so in terms of like getting through that South Wales experience. I mean, South Wales is actually quite a, a nice place to grow mm. up, really. It's, it's not hard. That's been amazing. You've been amazing. You've been amazing. I hope you've enjoyed this. We always end this podcast, and we're going to bring everyone into the conversation now, with the same thing, and we always want to know a couple of things about our guests. So I'll ask you one at a time. I'd love to know a book that has informed your life. You can't say Viz, it's a comic. I read a book five years ago called 10 Billion and it's about global overpopulation and it turned me vegetarian overnight. Oh? Yeah, changed everything, changed my perception of things. literature. Yeah, and it's just a, a fact-based book about what the world will look like with 10 billion people on it and how soon that's going to be. So that changed a lot of things for me, yeah. How about you, Julia? Well, I was just thinking, I do actually like a sort of a theology type book. I know that sounds a bit wow. weird, um, or not weird. But um, there's a writer, Naomi Wolf, and I think she she wrote a book called Zeros and Ones, and it was about the binary code and how women invented the binary code, mm. which I found very um, interesting. So I do sort of go towards reading sort of thesis type books on occasion wow. have you read boy george's books bits was it of... as you remembered <laughs> uh, <laughs> i've read bits of people's uh, memoirs and obviously it's always their own story yeah. um 
and I'll, I'll, I'd like to write my own sort of memoir oh, at some, some point please. and that would be my own story please. so always see the series of events that happens it's a, a personal would be a personal account but I do um, like reading people that I know of their uh, situations and I might have been in the vicinity of that situation yeah. and it's it's always completely different it's from how you remember it, it. it's their truth though are you are you going to be doing your own Maybe. Ah, oh, something in Moving the pipeline. On. Danny, has there been a trip that's changed your life? There was one that was designed to change my life, and I hope that it did, but I don't think it did. When I was a teenager, my mum's been married a few times, and she married a man, and he was doing all right for himself. And, um, and we had a bit of money, and so my mum took my sister and I, just on that brink of being a teenager and an adult, she took us to Kenya for a month and we stayed in all different types of places over the course of that month, from like the highest luxury places to like sheds, basically. We stayed in all different places. And I think the purpose of it all was to like show us the highs and lows of life. I guess what I took of it, it depends who you're with, really. It's all about who you're with. Yeah. And so I suppose I took that with me. Nice. How about you, Julia? A trip that's changed your life? Just the one, please. Oh, OK, because, you know, I've been quite lucky in my DJing work, especially in the 90s, because that really enabled me to travel around the world DJing and visiting all the, like, different clubbing communities. Are you big in Japan? I feel like you're big in Japan. I did go to Japan. Yeah, yeah. she is big in Japan. I, no, I'm not. I don't think I am, but I did no. go in the early 80s there as, as a module. That was quite fun. That was very interesting, actually, because it was a, a culture that was so uh, different to yeah. um, what was going on here. But th- then there were sort of influences, you know, coming through. And there definitely was a, a good sort of freaky club scene going on there yeah. as, as well, funnily enough. And there was a sort of like a, a scene going on there, which was like fabulous. But um, then... Um, well, I always loved going to New York, actually. That was quite fantastic, because it was like London, but like ten times more. So, How about um, a human that's made you who you are? Danny, we're coming to Danny. you. I wouldn't say made me who I am necessarily, but somebody that's had a huge impact on my life. It's already been name-dropped, and it's Fat Tony. It's Tony. And he took me to my first NA meeting. Oh, my God. And it changed my whole life. Yeah. And so I'd say Tony has probably had this wow. had the biggest Incredible. impact in my you life. No, Tony really yeah. has been very supportive. Yeah. You know, he doesn't really go on that much. He's helped a lot of He's people, a lot of people yeah. on the down low. Oh a lot. Yeah, he does a lot that no one has any idea no, about. No, I know that. Yeah. And um, you know, he really did go there and you know, he had some dark times and mm-hmm. um, yeah. It was breaking our hearts when Tony was in the height of addiction. It was we just didn't know what to do, and something happened that Tony turned a corner. And, and sometimes quite, you quite have to go, you have to go there yeah. with these things, you know. Um, that's sort of like, yeah, you know, that is life's experience. Julia, have um, you ever had a love that's taught you the biggest lesson? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you had right. a lot? Have you had lots of loves? That have no, you? I've not really had. I've been very successful in. Um, I've had bubbles. Yeah, intimate relationships. I do like dogs more than. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I'd rather go out with a dog. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had some fabulous relationships. I'm. I'm not going to lie, but um, um, they haven't been very long-lasting. I'll need to go to you for therapy. There you go. There's a, there's a person in the audience yeah, that's lovely. going to help me. Gorgeous. It's never too late. Well, that can, that can it's never happen. too late. You um, can have a cue. Danny, how about you? Have you had a love that's taught you the biggest lesson? Oh, it's my Alex. Oh. My boyfriend, Alex. Yeah, I am... Um, I look back on all the relationships I had before the one I'm in, <clears throat> and I always had this fear that even though the people that I was with back then were, like, the worst horrible... Can I swear? Yes. Yeah, the worst horrible bastards that you've ever met, right? But in my mind, I was so scared that I'd never meet another one because of who I was. I never felt good enough that I might meet another one. And so when, um, when everything changed, Alex was kind of a massive part in why things changed as well. Yeah. Tony obviously got me there, but I knew that... It's a, that the sober stuff was on its way. I could feel it, that things couldn't stay the way they were. And then Alex came around in my life and um, I, uh, I was terrified that I was going to ruin it because I knew that I was going to. I knew if things don't change, I'm going to lose him and he's going to be the best thing that's ever happened to me if he stays around. And so, um, yeah, through him sticking around... What he's taught me is that I do deserve the best because he is the best and I see him as the best and he's the most wonderful person and I now know that I deserved it because he's around. Oh, I'm going to come to you for some therapy. <laughs> I've had you've a big weekend, you've got me going. <laughs> got the life lessons. Danny. See, Look. the thing is, right, um, I, I sort of feel that I love love, and I love that people can fall in love and be in love, and like have had elements of it myself. But I think actually, you can still be a successful human and not be in a relationship as well. You know, I'm I'm just a, one of those real solitary type people, and I really enjoy it and embrace it, and um, I admire people that invest time and themselves into a relationship because I think they they are really hard as well yeah but it doesn't mean if you're single that you failed somehow yeah, as well you know you're okay. still you, you can still be a valid human yeah. in the world and go forth Okay, final thing, and then we've got to wrap this beauty up one track that soundtracks your life, Danny go. Um, I had to think about this one. It's um, George Michael Freedom. Oh, amazing. And it's the one I, li- I go back to the most, and I play it always. Every time I'm going to put a playlist on or make a playlist, it's always in it. And every time I want to be in a good mood, I play it. And it's just something that I've always gone back to. So yeah, freedom. Nice. How about you, Julia? Mighty Real by Sylvester. Oh, such a banger. I love that record. <laughs> I love Sylvester. Everything Sylvester stands for. Pioneering person. Yeah, I love that record. 
Well, that is it from us. Two icons have been here on stage. Can you please give it up for Danny St. James? And please follow Not A Phase immediately and the one and only Princess Julia. I'm Glyn Fussell and this has been We Can Be Heroes Live. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, share, like and please subscribe. 